This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach. Man, your guide on the side. Today, we're going to try to get you through life. In a variety of ways, we're going to be taking on Trump and what we call the wrecking ball. He continues to swing, leaving a wake of carnage. We will be talking about that, catching you up to date with the latest and greatest, including Donald disses a baby. Well, first he accepts the baby, then he... This is the baby. I couldn't really tell if that was a joke. I know. I don't. Think was he, he trying to continue a joke? Well, I'm going to bet he's saying it was a joke. But you, well, get the yeah. baby out of here. We'll talk about that. Uh, we've got so much to get into today. We're also going to be talking about your food, mm. real food versus like, fake I, I, food. I like food. I like food too, but you won't believe what you're eating. No, I do. I do. You think you're eating salmon? No. When no. you may be eating trout with pink, oh, chemicals in it to make it look. Salmony. Yeah. yeah. Weird, huh? Our food, and we, we all know, you know, the fast food chain's not good. Don't go there. But a lot of them are trying to get some of the chemicals out of their out of their food. They're trying to clean it up. However, it's probably the higher-end restaurants where you are most likely to not actually be eating what you ordered. Snapper, if you've ever ordered Snapper, very, very high likelihood you didn't eat Snapper. Personally, living yeah. in a landlocked state as I do, yeah, I I try to avoid fish just because you don't know what you're getting. You know, I when we go to San Francisco, mm-hmm. we get fish. Ironically, there, there's this ocean that's there, and I have this confidence that maybe someone <laughs> actually went out there and caught the fish, and yeah. not yeah, caught it three you know a week ago, iced it up and sent it over. You you the deal is, and we're going to get into this. You've got to trust the brand more than the name or title of the fish. So if the brand is a good brand for bringing you fish, trust the brand. For example, you would want to trust um, – you would want Kobe beef, for example, supposedly the nicest cut of beef you can get. Mm-hmm. And you may even order it at a restaurant in all 50 states somewhere. The reality is Kobe beef, real Kobe beef is only only has three – restaurants in the United States where it's served. So the rest so are just lying. The rest are lying. Nice. And you're buying an, a fine cut of it. steak, but yeah. it's not Kobe beef. So and they charge another 20 bucks for this name. Exactly. Okay. And the same is true, though, in sushi. The, the worst offender is in sushi. And just I love sushi. Cook your food. But a lot of times when you think you're eating you know, salmon, you're not. Period. It's like when carp. you think you're eating white tuna, it's not white tuna. Huh. It's probably tilapia. tilapia. Quite honestly. <laughs> By the way, olive oil, same thing. Honey, we're going to get to all of these things. Yeah. Things that you're ordering that you go to the store and buy every day, it's probably not what you think it is. Cheetos. Cheetos is everything you think it is. It's nice. And Confident it in my Cheetos. Oh, it's my favorite, except that I found out apparently they have a lot of salt in those things. No way. Yeah, makes my heart race. Wow. Not a good thing. We'll be getting to all of that information, plus the Donald Trump review of the day. And, and some other crazy stories. And by the way, it's Watermelon Day. Watermelon Day. One of the greatest fruits ever created by God. 98% water. 
Yeah, heaven. It's good stuff. And it only has just a little artificial flavors yeah. and colors. It's actually cantaloupe, but they yeah. Oh, I love watermelon. little food coloring. You're set. You can't. You can't. I can't get enough of it. And then I do, and then I'm sick. We will get to all of that, but first, let's get to the headlines around the country. And who better to be teaching or working us through this than Caitlin Thomas? Caitlin, what's up? Thanks, Matt. To start us off this morning, of course, we have Donald Trump who yesterday refused to back House Speaker Paul Ryan and Arizona Senator John McCain in their respective primary races, saying he is, quote, not quite there yet. Both Ryan and McCain have released statements in recent days distancing themselves from Trump's disparaging comments about a Gold Star family, and both have endorsed him. Quote, I like Paul, but these are horrible times for our country, Trump told the Washington Post. We need very strong leadership. We need very, very strong leadership, and I'm just not quite there yet. I'm not quite there yet. Since endorsing Donald Trump in February, New Jersey Jersey Governor Chris Christie has had pretty much only good things to say about the Republican presidential nominee. Yesterday, however, that came to a screeching halt. Christie announced during a press conference in New Jersey that he found Trump's recent attacks on the Kahn family, quote, inappropriate. Christie said that because of the Kahn sacrifice, they deserve the chance to say their piece, whether their words were right or wrong. An Emirates Boeing 777 with 300 people on board crash-landed at Dubai International Airport this morning, skidding along a runway and erupting into an intense fire. But the airline said all on board did survive. An engine was torn from the right wing of the plane as it scraped to a halt, forcing passengers and crew to evacuate before the aircraft was gutted by fire. Investigation into the cause of the fire and all of the problems is still underway. No one needs to tell the residents of New Orleans how much danger water can bring. NBC News had a lab test the tap water in two dozen homes in New Orleans, a 300-year-old city with aging infrastructure and many, many lead pipes. The results revealed that, a harmful, that harmful levels of lead may be much more prevalent in the city than tests currently prescribed by the Environmental Protection Agency show. When federal rules for lead were written in 1991, the first liter of water tested was supposed to be the best way to gauge, quote, worst-case lead levels in the water. But the science has evolved. Experts now believe that in houses connected to the water main with a service line made of lead, the highest levels may come after they first draw in the water that has been sitting in the lead line. So more investigation is to come into that. And finally, Matt, despite the American Dental Association touting the benefits of flossing since 1908 and the federal government pushing flossing since 1979, there's actually very little evidence it does anything to stop cavities or gum disease, according to a report from the Associated Press. (laughs) The AP... The AP looked at 25 studies over the past 10 years and found only, quote, weak and very unreliable evidence in support Woo! of flossing. So, so we, I'm feeling a little less guilty yes! this morning. We've been under floss. the thumb of big floss. I know. Yeah. My dentist is always getting angry at me for not flossing. My, my dentist is really nice. It's the hygienist <laughs> that scares me. Oh. She's always like, so you what? You can't afford floss? Does she always lecture you for not flossing? Mm-hmm. But now you can just give her this study and say, but there's weak, very unreliable evidence in support of it. My my hygienist thinks go. she's a uh, thinks she's a forensic hygienist because mm. she's like, apparently you only brush. She's like, we have to excavate one way. here. <laughs> <laughs> she's got to start excavating. She brings out the pick. Hold beep, on, beep. hold on, we're going in. But she's Miner's mine hat, can figure out mine can figure out my brushing patterns, my mm. time of brushing. This is like dental CSI. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You're like, back off. We don't need to fingerprint that. That's right. She goes, <laughs> she, then she even said something. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out during the autopsy. DNA is not necessary. Like, That's my teeth. Knock it off. Get off my teeth. Trying to charge you more. Man alive. Okay, we got to get to the Trumpster. I think we are at a moment. I came in He's imploding, folks. Here's, he, he's going crazy. Here's a rundown, okay? Yeah, let's hear the rundown. In the last few days, Donald Trump picked a prolonged fight with the parents of the dead soldier, 
said they shouldn't be permitted to criticize him. He called Hillary Clinton the devil, said the November elections will be rigged. He falsely claimed he got a letter from the NFL complaining about the debate schedule. And he said radical Islamic terrorists are coming into the U.S. by the thousands and thousands. He then told a USA Today op-ed writer that he would urge his daughter to quit her job if she were the subject of workplace harassment. Mm. House Speaker Paul Ryan has been to the uh, been the Republican leader most willing to try to uh, put Trump in line. And yesterday, he Trump refused to endorse Paul Ryan or John McCain. <sighs> John McCain kicked, is in the fight for his life right now. Asked a baby to leave a rally yesterday or something. Well, and <laughs> we missed the Purple Heart. And then there was the Purple Heart, which if you it, holy cow says he got it the easy way. The guy gave it to him. The Purple Heart. We'll pull the quote and and have it for you. But the a guy a guy gives him a Purple Heart. He then goes up and he says, "You won't believe what just happened." A guy just came up to me and said, "Mr. Trump, here's my Purple Heart." And then Mr. Trump said, "Is that a real Purple Heart or is that is that the fake?" Which sounded so offensive mm-hmm. when he said that. And no, it's the real thing. And he gave me his real Purple Heart. And then Mr. Trump said, "Boy, that's the easiest." Way to get a purple to get it. No, he also said, "I've always wanted a purple heart." <laughs> with where anyone on earth that's ever had a purple heart yeah. or ever fought in the war never wanted the purple heart. No, you don't want to get. You shot. don't want to get hurt. Yeah. Ironically, they say uh, the they then interviewed the man that gave him the purple heart. Donald brought him up on the stage. Everyone cheered for him. But later, the media interviewed him and asked if that was the original or if that was a copy. And he says, "Oh no, it's a copy." I told Mr. Trump that, and then immediately Mr. Trump went up on stage and told him it was the real thing. Huh. No reason to do that. So this is where the media are having a come apart, as I think our Reince Priebus is apparently going nutso on this, like calling him all the time, trying to correct stuff. He's now pushing back against Paul Ryan. Donald Trump is now not going to support Paul Ryan, the other leader, uh, the, the the true leader of the Republican Party, as Donald's been a Democrat much of his life, um, it's fallen apart. And now there's scuttle, uh, according to John Heineman, that that behind the scenes, people are trying to figure out what happens if Trump dumps out. If he just drops out of the race. What's the contingency plan? Hmm. And I mean, even more to the point, what happened, he'll claim, you know, they pushed me out. See, the whole thing's rigged. rigged. He's already setting it up that way. But and then this goes back to the whole conspiracy theory that everybody's been talking about since day one, that he spent an hour plus on the phone talking to Bill Clinton at the very beginning of this thing. Should I run? Should I not run? Should I run? Some were saying he's just going to go be a go be bait to trick everybody and. Then he'll drop out of the race, but it's now it's self fulfilling. <laughs> he's 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 going crazy. We wanted to play some audio. Uh, one thing you got to hear is the baby part. Um, uh, Trump asks lady a lady's baby starts crying in the middle of the meeting, and um, Trump says, "Don't worry about it. I love babies." It was a really beautiful moment. He's very calm. I love babies. Don't worry about it. Then about two or three minutes later, the baby starts crying again, and then Trump is like all grumpy old man says, get that baby out of here. World, a Chinese bank. Don't worry about that baby. I love babies. So. I love babies. I hear that baby crying. I like I like it. What a baby. What a beautiful baby. Don't worry. Don't worry. 
The mom's running around like, don't worry about it, you know. It's young and beautiful and healthy, and that's what we want. Okay. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. That's all right. Don't worry. I, I think she really believed me that I love having a baby crying while I'm speaking. Yeah. It goes on from there. Get the baby out of here. Yeah. I mean, and literally, he's like, yeah, no. Yeah. I, yeah. And then he says sarcastically, yeah, sure. I love having a baby cry through my entire speech. So he's using humor, I guess, to shame a mom to get her baby out of the room. But t- t- this didn't pass Tim Kaine, vice presidential candidate um, Tim Kaine. He, he, had a, he had a little uh, quote of his own about babies. Time in life. I saw that Donald Trump kicked a crying baby out of, a, uh, out of an event earlier today. So as I'm thinking about pre-K, sometimes you wonder who the baby is. Um, <clears throat> right? You wonder who the baby is. Such a jab. But what do you think? He's he's coming unhinged. Uh, so there's these reports coming out of the Trump campaign. Uh, CNN has one that says Donald Trump's aides and people close to his campaign are increasingly frustrated by his by his instance, his insistence on waging various fights to steer him off message. Sources close to the campaign describing a series of missteps that are trailing the GOP presidential nominee, his most prominent now his multi-day battle against the Khan family, the Muslim father of the killed U.S. soldier. A knowledgeable uh, Republican source told CNN that some of the Trump's campaign staff, even campaign manager Paul Manafort, feel like they are wasting their time. Mm. And they need to get back on message. Yeah. And he's going to continue to maybe slide because he's doing this stuff that people are at some point are going to, okay, there's Trump being Trump and then there's just being mean and... And yeah, and just know. totally distracted. Meanwhile, you're going against Hillary Clinton that I don't know if you've noticed it. Every day there's another person coming out of the woodwork with a really strong argument against Donald. Like even now they're talking about his taxes again mm-hmm. and going in-depth on his taxes, which is a whole new controversy. I mean it's an old controversy with him, but with more and more data, more and more information, more and more evidence – and, and meanwhile, he's distracted uh, because he's pushing a baby out. And then yesterday, meeting. the judge That's right. in the U.S. court case on John Trump University said the case can go forward. It's moving forward. So it'll happen, what, in September, yeah, I September, think? October, you're going yeah. to have your candidate going through. Running uh, for president and in court testifying as to what he knows about Trump University. He also commented that even through the middle of most of this, he's still been running his business empire and doing a lot of real estate. Yeah. So – Again, it's it, the weird thing about this is some of this won't bode well for his other endeavors anyway. No. A, it won't get him elected as president, but B, most people, you know, most most brands don't want to be associated with somebody that is anti-veteran seemingly or anti-war hero or at least has those quotes yeah. attached to him. And anti uh, and, and racist he and might misogynistic. Just be, he might and, just be anti-McCain. Yeah. You know, anti-John McCain, well, and yeah. he chose to go after his... And Khan family. And the Khan family. Well, see, the Khan family, as we talked about yesterday, yeah. they have some connections to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Sure. But at the same time, nobody is talking about it. They talk about them as the, the, the parents of a fallen soldier. Right. And then Trump puts her spokesperson on TV yesterday, and she starts blaming this is all on Obama and his policies. <laughs> the guy died in 2004. Right. Obama didn't take office till 2008. So well, I yeah, mean, <laughs> but retroactively. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's it's so bad that the sitting president is commenting on it. 
where normally the sitting president would pretty much try to stay out of basically saying this guy's not fit. He's not fit. And yet President Obama, um, uh, he, he can't tolerate it so much. He has to say something. There have been Republican presidents with whom I disagreed with, but I didn't have a doubt that they could function as president. I think I was right and, and, and Mitt Romney and John McCain were wrong on certain policy issues, but I never thought that they couldn't do the job. And had they won, I know they're going to abide by certain norms and rules and common sense. We'll observe basic decency. We'll have enough knowledge about economic policy and foreign policy and our constitutional traditions and rule of law that our government will work. And then we'll... Mm. And Trump responded, President Obama is a horrible president. He'll be the worst president in the history of our country, and that'll that'll be seen. Everyone will know that. It'll be fine. Uh, and then he moved on. You're like, well, okay. Oh, my heavens. By the way, ABC confirms uh, that RNC are considering options if Trump drops out. There you go. So the rumors are true. You spent... Uh, ABC News' Jonathan Carl reported Wednesday. I'm told senior officials at the party are actively exploring what would happen if Trump dropped out, how to replace him on the ballot, and to see how you do that legally. Well, the, By the way, that very thought when we just barely closed a convention, and think of the tens of millions of dollars on that convention. Yeah. They're still paying for it. They and, didn't have all the money right. to pay for that because the uh, the Koch brothers refused to help out. They went to Sheldon Adelson to get some more money. I'm not sure if there was money there. We didn't even talk about Meg Whitman. She came out yesterday. By, who ran for governor of California and is a big money raiser for the Republican Party. And she's come out supporting Hillary Clinton because she cannot support Donald Trump. Man. <sighs> Crazy time, folks. Buckle up. This is maybe the time you need to turn to God, quite literally. Let's let's do that because this is getting out of control. But uh, stick with us. We'll we'll help you. We'll help you through it. We've got you. We'll take a break when we come back. We will be speaking about real food versus fake food. Crazy bait and switch we've all been experiencing at the supermarket. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. McDonald's is making national news. They are planning to remove artificial preservatives from their chicken nuggets. Subway, Dunkin' Donuts, and Taco Bell are following suit. They're removing artificial items from their food as well. But as bad as fast food is, the grocery store, believe it or not, may be worse. A high-end restaurant, in fact, may be even worse. Everything you love, from cheese to olive oil, sushi, and honey, could be and probably is fake, according to our next guest. Larry Olmsted uh, joins us to discuss his book, An Exposé on the Food Industry. The name of the book is Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Larry Olmsted, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. What an interesting uh discovery you've made here. I guess it should be better known to all of us, and I guess that's the purpose of your book, is to get this information out there. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I should say that, you know, there is lots of great real food. That's why I, I called it real food, fake food. Um, you know, it's not that everything we eat is fake. It's that every category has uh, some degree of fraud and people just need to be aware so they can avoid it. I wasn't, wasn't trying to scare people right. off of food. I was trying to lead them to the good stuff. <laughs> and like you make a really good point about just an example, like Kobe steak. Um, it's there, there's more to it than just getting like the best cut of meat ever. What we're also missing by having fake food is is just great experiences with taste and flavor, uh, and and sometimes health. I mean, there's there's really four levels on which this operates. One is you get uh, economically defrauded. You pay for something that's an expensive product like Kobe beef, the most pretty much the most expensive beef in the world, and you don't get it. So you're getting ripped off. Secondly, in the case of Kobe beef, for example, the real thing, they're not allowed to use any antibiotics or steroids or hormones in raising that meat, which is widely done in the U.S. So when you get, you know, a domestic imitation, suddenly uh, maybe it's less healthy than you thought it would be. Uh, In some of these cases, the foods you get are actually unhealthy, which would be the third level. Uh, And then you're, you're, we're, the artisanal cheese, uh, food makers behind these cheeses and oils and meats and whatever it is here and abroad are being defrauded. So, you know, there's there's a lot of different things going on when we buy fake food. Mm. And and yet you think you're having you think you're you think you're having a great meal and I, I guess it's it's satisfying and if it's not making you sick, but still there's the fraud behind it that we think we're getting one thing but we're actually getting another. True. And some of it is making us sick. And, you know, you say you have a satisfying meal, but one of the things I've seen is one of the it's it's very common uh, to be able to fool people in areas with which they are not familiar. So very few Americans have ever tried uh, real Japanese Wagyu or real truffles or a lot of these kind of more rarefied foods or even really good olive oil. So it's very easy to serve you um, things that are pale imitations when you don't know what the real thing tastes Hmm. like. And, you know, as far as the the making you sick, a good example, um, sushi, a very frequent substitute in sushi restaurants for tuna is a fish called escalar. And its nickname in the seafood industry is the X-lax of the sea. It gives a lot of people stomach distress. Oh, wow. Widely known. And people eat sushi, and if they don't feel well the next day, they say, oh, I must have had bad tuna. But the reality is they never had tuna at all, and that's why they're sick. Mm. And we think, well, yeah, but come on, Larry. That's just at the really low-end tuna or the low-end sushi bars and sushi places, Right. Well, for the most part, with sushi, yes, um, it is more limited. The higher-end places uh, get much better fish and are less likely to defraud you, but that's not true of all restaurants. A lot of the the, uh, other fraud that I talk about, from the Kobe beef to other kinds of seafood substitution, Red Snapper, for instance, um, is the most widely substituted species of fish in the United States. In one national study, restaurants and retail, 94% of the time people ordered it, they did not get red snapper. And that's not a fish that really shows up as an entree at low-end restaurants. Right. Um, you know, so this is a problem across the price board. 94% of the time when you order red snapper, you're not getting red snapper. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the crazy thing, right? I went all around the world trying some of these, uh, you know, delicious foods. I had Kobe beef in Japan. I've had Kobe beef in the U.S. But um, I don't know if I've ever had Red Snapper. The fraud is so prevalent. Um, <laughs> the only way I would know is, you know, next time I go to the Caribbean or Mexico or someplace where I can get a whole fish at the beach, I'm going to do that to try it because you just can't trust a restaurant. And, uh, I mean, again, we, we always joke about the fact that we live in Utah, not, not a lot of uh, – not a lot of oceanfront property here, and yet you're eating you're eating salmon, but you really may not be eating salmon if you're not careful. Well, salmon is a little more recognizable. Most of the the substitution is with your whitefish species because you know Americans are kind of detached from where their food comes from. Very few of us, including myself, you know, fish for our own fish or buy whole fish. So when you get a white fish fillet, um, you could put a fillet of tilapia and grouper and red snapper next to each other on a counter, and almost no one could tell them apart. Salmon is a little bit more recognizable because of its color. The problem with salmon is um, American consumers consistently have demonstrated a preference for wild-caught salmon over farm. They're willing to pay more for it, but... Um, as a result of that, and you can't tell them apart from each other, um, farm salmon is often passed off as wild-caught, both in stores and restaurants. One Consumer Reports study went to supermarkets and bought what was labeled wild-caught salmon, and more than half of it was not. Oh, wow. So, and I guess this is for – this is just to get more money. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all greed across the board, and some of it, you know, is, is fairly small-scale, you know um, – uh, when when the Boston Globe did a big investigation of seafood fraud in New England, they talked to one sushi place and they said, how can you serve tilapia and say it's red snapper on the menu? And the manager said, basically, um, we're not trying to fool anyone. It's it's just what everyone does. It's business as usual. and It's that pervasive. And there, you know, that mom and pop restaurant is making a little more money. But some of this is much more um, – on the scale of organized crime. And some of the scientists that I talked to said, you know, it's, it's basically just like drug dealing, except if you get caught, there's very little chance you're going to go to jail. So you've got big margins and there's rings that, you know, import. But the largest um, prosecuted food fraud case ever in the history of the United States was an organized ring that was importing banned honey from China. They were shipping it to third-party countries along the way, relabeling it as originating there to sort of disguise its place of origin. This honey had both banned antibiotics that are known to be dangerous oh, wow. and was cut with corn sugar. And over the six years, they imported $80 million worth of this honey. So this is not like a small-scale thing. And, and we've heard of... Uh... Um, the the rings and the kind of the I don't know what you'd call it I guess just the underground extra or the olive oil you know mafias that that exist out there as well talk about what's happening with olive oil and the extra virgin olive oil when you think you're buying that what are you really buying well the organized crime I don't think is as involved in this country in Italy they have a lot of problems with it our problem is more just um, that. You know, I think there's been a dumbing down of the labels. So extra virgin is supposed to represent the highest grade of quality available in olive oil. Just like when you go to the uh, uh, gas station, they have regular premium and ultra premium. So extra virgin is supposed to be ultra premium olive oil. And a couple of producers I talked to in Europe or experts estimated that maybe 8 to 10% of olive oil would qualify as extra virgin. But in this country, 
it's virtually impossible to buy a bottle that isn't labeled extra virgin. It's like great inflation. So <laughs> the yeah, University of California Davis did a test of supermarket olive oils and found that 69% of those labeled um, uh, extra virgin did not qualify for the legal standard for extra virgin. 60 minutes, consumer reports, there's been other studies all come out with around the same numbers. Um, so it's not. It's usually. Uh, it used to be that there were problems with adulteration. They would cut olive oil with cheaper oils like uh, soybean oil, peanut oil, whatever. But testing has gotten a little bit better. So more often than not, it's just a lower grade. It's just not. It might be olive oil, but it's not as good as it should be. And. I get really good olive oil. I love olive oil. It's, it's one of my favorite foods. And when you taste the really good stuff, you can never go back to eating cheap olive oil again. Yeah, you say it sound, It tastes It tastes old. It tastes like moldy. It's yeah. flavorless. I mean, yeah. It's supposed to be a fairly strong... Um, I mean, one of the one of the chefs that I talked to said, you know, it's the taste of sunshine caught in liquid. You know, it tastes <laughs> like freshness and brightness and... Um, uh, so, you know, and I, again, I'm not trying to scare people off of olive oil. I, it, it's, it's the good stuff is really healthy. It's, um, it's got all kinds of positive properties. It's delicious. It makes other foods taste good. I do like the Italians do. I pour it on top of my steak, which is kind of unheard of in this country. You know, yeah. people use ketchup or A1, but you know, it's that good when it's good. Uh, I, I, did, I did a book signing in Ann Arbor last week where I had, um, a specialty store doing olive oil tasting at the book signing. And I saw these people's eyes light up, you know, person after person was like, I've never tasted anything like this. Oh, that's great. Again, and we're missing so much just by only, I guess, by not being informed, which is really the purpose of your book. Exactly. I mean, at the end of every chapter, I give shopping tips, label tips, things to look for. And, you know, again and again, I've seen this just in a few weeks since my book came out. I also did a cheese tasting at one of my signings where, you know, once you taste the real thing, you don't have to worry as much about the labeling because you know what it tastes like. You can't be. The problem is most of us don't know what it tastes like the first time. And truffle oil is a great example of that. You know, it's become ubiquitous in sort of mid-level neighborhood restaurants that want to fancy up the menu. Truffle fries, truffle mashed potatoes, even truffle popcorn. This has nothing to do with actual truffles. <laughs> yet we have a whole generation of Americans who are being raised thinking that the the taste of this synthetic perfume oil substance made in a lab with no truffle in it is what truffles taste like. Uh, it's not, but people don't know that because truffles are pretty rare and expensive. Right, right. Man, fascinating. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to continue the discussion with Larry Olmsted on his book, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Stick with us, folks. We're helping you open your eyes a bit when it comes to uh, your food. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about Real Food, Fake Food, a book written by Larry Olmsted about uh, why you don't know what you're eating and what you can do about it. And uh, Larry's on the line with us, walking us through uh, some of the ways that we've been scammed in our in our food chain. And, you know, he's not here to scare us. He's here to educate us. But But this is a pretty – I mean, this is – this does amount to health sometimes. This this can end up 
killing or I mean harming you if if something is laced with peanut oil when you think it's olive oil it could be a problem couldn't it Larry it could um, I think most of the problems I've seen are, are longer term where you were maybe ingesting um, uh, uh, something that's a potential carcinogen over a long time. It's not the kind of thing that's going to make you sick the next day. But, you know, definitely we've seen a lot of long-term health issues in this country tied to our food production. And probably, you know, the, the biggest is uh, the, the issue right now is these um, antibiotic-resistant uh, superbugs, which is, you know, a very real problem. It is killing people. It's costing a lot of money, and uh, scientists are scrambling to you know, to create new antibiotics. And, and one of the reasons we have this issue is because 80% of the antibiotics produced in this country go directly into animal feed. Uh, so, you know, I personally try to buy meat that is drug-free, whether it's pork or chicken or beef or seafood. And because of the way um, a lot of this food is labeled and sold, both retail and restaurants, that's not always as easy as it should be. Man. Well, what about the argument? Well, the government's on this, Larry. The, the governments they're cracking down on stuff. Uh, the government is, is most definitely not on this. Uh, I will say that, um, I mean, the problem got so bad with seafood that in, in 2014, President Obama had to um, use a presidential memo to uh, set up a task force to combat seafood fraud. And, you know, if you think about that, you know, that, that means there's a pretty big problem with, with seafood when the president has to step in. And as a result of that, those recommendations are sort of coming out right now, and FDA is is apparently stepping up its policing of seafood, which was which, which was really bad. Um, so you know, it, there's a little bit of a bright light at the end of that particular tunnel, but a lot of these areas there is none. And, and one example that you know it's talked about a lot in the press is just the word natural. The FDA has chosen, you know, it's not an oversight. They've met about this, talked about it, had public hearings, and chosen not to make a definition for the word natural. So as a result, producers of all kinds of things can use it any way they want because there's no definition. You can't say it's wrong. And I think it's uh, one out of every four new food products introduced in supermarkets last year in all categories had the word natural on it. Oh, wow. And you can't really blame people for, like, if they look at chicken and natural chicken, wanting to pay 20 cents more a pound for natural chicken, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, it, it is natural to plump up your chicken with hormones. That seems natural. Well, it's I like mean, you can make the argument on natural so many ways. It, it So it's almost like you're saying, Larry, we can't fully trust – you can't trust the label um, or, or even what they're saying in the label. Uh, so who do we trust? Oh, I mean, you can trust some labels. The problem is the onus on the consumer to know so many things. Here's a good example is grass-fed. A lot more people want to eat grass-fed beef now since the omnivore's dilemma and some of these books. So the USDA, which actually does a pretty good job of enforcing its labels, does not define the term grass-fed, but they do define the term 100% grass-fed. So now you as the consumer have to memorize this, and you have to go to the supermarket and say, oh, grass-fed, that means nothing, but I can buy 100% grass-fed because that's what I want. And that would be fine maybe if that was the only label in existence, but there's hundreds of these terms, uh, humane-fed, green-fed, free-ranging, um, uh, none of which mean anything. So you have to now memorize these lists, and then you have to memorize, well, who labels this particular food? Is this the FDA or the USDA? So it becomes um, kind of unwieldy for the consumer. And why aren't they, why aren't they you know, finalizing this? Why aren't they making the, the steps to better define these terms? 
I, it, I don't know. It's been an issue forever. I mean, for the big one used to be organic. It took decades of of uh, hearings and public outcry used to be completely undefined. And and when interest in healthier foods rose, producers started slapping organic on everything because they could because it didn't mean anything. The USDA finally defined organic, I think, in 2002, but natural and a lot of these other terms are sort of the next shoe to drop. Wow. is um, I guess I can also probably trust brands, right? Uh, it seems like, I mean, in, in the article you mentioned, um, you know, if I want Scottish scotch, that's a the Scots are going to make sure their scotch is good. Well, I give I use scotch as an example of how real foods should be protected. So, for whatever, as a nation, we have long taken a stand against what are called geographically indicated foods, which are foods associated with a place. So, it's legal in this country to make domestic versions of things like champagne and Kobe beef and Parmesan cheese, which comes from Parma, Italy. Uh, champagne's a real shocker to most people. Everybody says, oh, champagne can only be made in France, and it should be that way, but it's not. You can make it in upstate New York, and, and lots of people do. Um, scotch, for some reason, is the one product that our country took a stand on, and literally an act of Congress to protect scotch as uh, a drink that can only originate in Scotland under, uh, made under Scottish law. So it's like one thing I say, hey, go buy scotch in this country. You'll be absolutely fine. You'll get what you expect, huh. and drink that while you read my book. Wow, that's right. It's so so. There is, I mean, geographically, I guess these people want to protect what is their namesake, their their brand. Well, absolutely. Just like we want to protect uh, software made by Microsoft and movies made by Hollywood and you know music. So we take as a country very aggressive stance on intellectual property, except when it comes to other people's. Yeah. And another thing you mentioned and tell me if this is okay, do I do I trust do I trust my stores to differentiate for me? Should I trust that a Costco and a Walmart are going to make sure that I'm getting what I they say I'm getting? Well, the big box stores, much to the surprise of a lot of readers, do a really good job on things that involve um, sort of labeling specific. So Walmart now is the single largest seller of, of real organic produce in the United States, if not the world. Um, uh, with seafood, one of the things I recommend is looking for these third-party certifications like the Marine Stewardship Council or the Global Aquaculture um, uh, I, I forget what the third third word is, but um, you know they have these seals that uh, that sort of guarantee where your seafood is coming from. And the big box stores have been aggressive about buying from distributors that have better chain of custody control and use these seals. So for some products, they are really good. Um, for seafood, I like Whole Foods as well. But with other products like the cheeses, it's all over the board. Most hmm. of these stores sell what I would consider the real and the fake version side by side. So we need to stay educated. Uh, and really, I mean, be, become a, a real shopper, become, a, become, I guess, a connoisseur, somebody that can, can, can take it a lot deeper and, and be more, um, I guess, conversant in it. Anything else we can do that would make a big difference in, in having real food instead of just the fakes? Well, the biggest, you know, the categories are kind of complex and different, but the big general tip that I can give is 
you're always better off buying the food in, in like the holist form you can. And I, I use the example of a Maine lobster. You buy a Maine lobster, you know exactly what you're getting. They can't fool you. It looks like a lobster. You buy lobster ravioli, and in some cases, it contains no lobster. Right. Once it's chopped up, once you can't see it, same with coffee. You buy whole bean coffee, you know you're getting coffee. You buy ground coffee, it's got centuries-long history of adulteration. So try to buy the food in a recognizable form that you can't be fooled by. Hmm. There you go. Well, it's great. Uh, I think it's great work, Larry. It's it, you can tell you're obviously passionate about it, and it's you've put it in a nice, concise way that we can just go eat it up. Anything else we need to know? Anything? I always call it the one thing. As we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing that makes the biggest difference to uh, to have the the real foods? I think just um, you know. I say in the book, real foods come from real places, and there's a reason why certain foods are really associated with places. So if you buy, you know, Parmesan cheese from Parma, Italy, and taste it, you can buy it at almost any supermarket in the U.S. It's so much better than the copies of of Parmesan cheese made in other places. You won't want to buy them again, and it's like that for a lot of foods. Yeah, it's so true. And then you might even want to go there, get the real story, taste the real stuff. Larry Olmstead, thank you so much. Great uh, luck with your book, Real Food, Fake Food, Why You Don't Know What You're Eating and What You Can Do About It. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Everybody go check out the website as well, Real food, uh, realfoodfakefood.com. Great uh, resources with, with some background as well on, uh, on all of his research, some cited uh, sources there so you can get a deeper cut. We'll take a break come back wrap up this first hour of the matt townsend show and by the way let's bring you some real food how about a twinkie that's lasted 40 years (laughs) we'll be talking about that just right after the break welcome back friends to the matt townsend show you know when you think about it uh it's, it's too easy, I think, to just be a consumer without spending much energy thinking about it. If we want to make sure that we are not bait and switched, then you have to be informed. And by the way, that's true with your presidential election, and it's true with the, the food you're buying at the store as well. It's when you when when we get into the the details behind the scenes and some of the work uh, that Larry Olmsted was doing, it's crazy. Only two percent of the fish that is brought into this country is is ever inspected, which is crazy, isn't it? Two percent is inspected, but ninety one percent of the fish we consume in the United States is brought in from out of the country. So you may not have a clue what you're getting, and yet in, even in 1981, there was a story about um, a mass food poisoning in Spain where 800 people died because of toxic uh, oil, olive oil. Some other chemicals were put in the olive oil to cut the oil and uh, to make it, um, you know, make it so that they could make more money on it. 800 people died because of it. Now, you're not going to go die, but the bait and switch, it's a very real, very uh, real marketing ploy. And it, it may be happening, happening in the elections as well. Bait and switch is the action, generally illegal, of advertising goods that are an apparent bargain 
with the intention of substituting inferior or more expensive goods. They get you in cheap and they sell you really expensive or they get you in expensive, you thought, really high quality for a deal and you end up getting tilapia. You thought it was red snapper and you get tilapia. Anyway, uh, be careful. Buyer beware, right? Caveat emptor. You, you've got to watch out for yourself. And uh, at this point, too, watch out for your family. Watch out for what's healthiest. Also, go find the, the stores and ask the questions. If you're getting sushi, talk to the people there. Where do they get their fish? And, and make sure you know exactly what fish is being put on it, even if it's advertised as, as salmon or white salmon or white tuna, I mean. If it's being advertised that way, make sure that's what it is. And when you find a really good restaurant, start telling people about it. So those that have integrity uh, get to benefit from it. Now, that's one problem we have. Another problem we have, though, which probably isn't a problem. It's, it's quite honestly a blessing. We've manufactured something. You may have remember we, we did a story about a ball of butter that was about 2,000 years old that they found. Dated back to the time of Jesus. Back to the time of Jesus. A, a big butter ball. A big – in the bogs, it was covered in mud, but it was a huge wad of butter. Lasted 2,000 years. Still, I guess, palatable or usable. Ugh. But there's something else that is in the running for the butterball. It's now lasted 40 years. It started as a chemistry experiment, and it now sits under glass in Maine at a school. And it, it's simply a Twinkie. What doesn't kill you makes you a 40-year-old Twinkie. Still doing great. Not moldy, not gross. Probably has that filling inside that you could just, you know, stick your finger in there like a little kid. Ugh. Roger Bonatti was teaching a lesson 40 years ago to his high school chemistry class when he put the Twinkie on the shelf as a little experiment. And they tried to see how long it would last, and by golly, it lasted 40 years. So there's no uh, – that, that that's the food right there that keeps giving. You know, that you know that's legit. Anyway, that's America for you right there. We created the Twinkie that lasts forever. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, Dr. Matt, your guide on the side. I'm here to give you the tools, the information, the research, the resources, what you need to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You know, we weren't born we weren't born with an owner's manual for heaven's sake. So we're going to give you the info you need and then you got to figure out your life. I can't do it for you for Pete's sake. I can bring you a 40-year-old Twinkie though. We've got a great show for you this hour. By the way, Watermelon Day is what we're celebrating today. The wonderful 90% water in the fruit watermelon. Mm-mm-mm. 
that sweet flavor. Nothing says summer more than watermelon. Uh, Terry and I, in fact, just the other day watched a guy peeling – because there's a lot of really great watermelon uh, – what are they called? Videos on YouTube. How to peel a watermelon. Ben and I watched one of an exploding watermelon. Yes, it was very entertaining. It took like nine minutes to blow up a watermelon with rubber bands. I kind of thought it was overrated. Anyway, got a great show for you today. We will be talking about uh, how violence actually impacts your kids. And they don't even have to necessarily suffer it in their real life. They can just watch it on TV. Amazingly, we're seeing more and more violence, believe it or not, because we're our world is becoming more violent globally. And we have this fascination with it. So when a bomb goes off in another country, we put it on the news and talk about it for hours. Our right. kids then start to wonder when the bomb's going to blow up in their neighborhood. And then the next TV season, you have NCIS and whatever FBI show. And yeah. all those guys decide to do a whole show about it because that's what you do. And then you get Iron Man, you get Batman, you get all of these. I think Iron Man and Batman are the same person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Well, they're both rich. They both, yeah. Yeah. They both like to play with toys. They both have funny belts with, you know, boomerang, batarangs on them. Yeah. They both like bats. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's only like three or four real superheroes. Yeah. The rest are all just kind of, I don't know, wannabes. Posers, yeah. yeah. Posers. And what's so great, Terry can't rebut. Well, it's almost more fun when he gets offended. Yeah. But uh, he, maybe he'll listen to this later and then come talk to well, us. Oh, uh, he, he will. He already will. We've also got a game we're going to be playing in the first few minutes. Um, it's it's going to be so exciting. You're, you will want to stick around. It's called uh, – <laughs> it's a weird game. But it's called Strangled Cats or Stradivarius. It's, there's a story about a lady who was arrested – I mean, cited because her cat, her violin playing was so loud that they thought that she was harming a cat. And we really just, we wanted to investigate it and yeah. see if it was, and conduct a study to see if you could really make that mistake. And so we've we put together a game and we're going to have Caitlin uh, join us for the game. And she's got to detect, is the sound we're hearing the sound of a Stradivarius, nice, incredibly expensive violin? Or is it a cat that's straining, not necessarily being strangled? No cats were injured in the making of maybe short of breath. Tests. Yeah, they, they, they were pushed to their limits. We'll say that. Uh, we'll get to all of that uh, plus our guest about um, mental health and chill and violence and the impact it has. All of that coming up. But first, let's get to Caitlin Thomas and find out about the headlines around the rest of the country. Caitlin. Thanks, Matt. Amy Dacey, the chief executive officer of the Democratic National Committee, is resigning in the wake of a leak of the organization's emails, which revealed many staffers actively attempting to suppress Bernie Sanders in his primary battle with Hillary Clinton. In addition to Dacey, CFO Brad Marshall and communications director Louis Miranda also stepped down. Rather than consider the possibility that he might actually be slipping behind Hillary Clinton in the polls, Donald Trump has concluded there simply must be something wrong with the polls. 
Quote, I think these polls, I don't know, there's something phony, Trump said at a Tuesday night rally in Ashburn, Virginia. Trump was particularly incensed about a poll by CNN, a network he's dutifully documented his disdain for on Twitter. He told the crowd the fact that he trails Clinton by nine points in a CNN poll is due to his refusal to do an interview for a network that is, quote, negative all day long. On Tuesday, Representative Richard Hanna became the first Republican member of the House to openly admit he will... He will be voting for Hillary Clinton for president in a move that prioritizes defeating Donald Trump over party loyalty. Quote, he says, I think Donald Trump is a national embarrassment. Is he really the guy you want to have the nuclear codes? Adding that the Republican nominee is unfit to serve our party and cannot lead this country. On Tuesday, Delaware Supreme Court ruled that the state's death penalty law violates the U.S. Constitution because it allows a judge, not a jury, to impose capital punishment. The state's top court cited a January U.S. Supreme Court ruling that struck down a similar law in Florida because the Sixth Amendment requires a jury, not a judge, to to find each fact necessary to impose a sentence of death. And lastly, here's some happy news for you, Matt. These are my favorite to report. Michael Phelps already has more medals than any other athlete in history. Now he's going to add a flag to the mix as Team USA's flag bearer at the opening ceremony in Rio on Friday. The Olympic National Committee announced... Um, today, the swimmer headed to his fifth Olympics has 22 medals to his name, including 18 golds. Quote, mm. he says, I'm honored to be chosen, proud to represent the U.S. and humbled by the significance of carrying the flag and all it stands for, he said in a U- Team USA release. So that's exciting for him that's on a, Friday. That's a lot of gold. I'm looking forward to the Olympics. This, this, this all starts Friday, right? Friday, Friday night. is the opening ceremony and he will be our flag bearer. So oh, that's kind of fun. Cool. They didn't ask you to do that, Caitlin? Uh, I only have a crown. He has 18 gold. Maybe if I'd won Miss America, they would have asked me. I'm sure they would have. By the way, Miss America's... Our flag bearer. Miss America... What happens if Miss America gets Zika virus? Oh, that'd be bad. So... But, (laughs) yeah, she'll get over it. (laughs) I'd be fine. I've survived worse. Yeah. Yeah, she's getting in a little trouble. I don't know if you're hearing about that. Who? Miss America. For what? Um, Just some statements from her past. That was Miss Teen USA. That's oh, completely different pageant. Don't even try and mix those two, Matt. You know what I realized, Ben? <laughs> as yes. as Terry what? is to uh, Marvel comic characters, oh, Caitlin is to pageantry. We all have our thing, Matt. You were in the same pageant where you was Honey Boo Boo, Caitlin. I don't even want to talk to you. Okay, just check. <laughs> Come in here, Caitlin. We've got a quiz for you. That you're going to want to be a part of. You will not want to miss this. Here's the first story out of the shoot that we've got to get to. A uh, a woman had her violin confiscated, taken away. I mean, it's a violin, for heaven's sakes. After neighbors complain about strangled cat noises, which I don't even know what that sounds like. What on earth does a strangled cat even sound like? The only way you'd know that is if you strangled a cat. Or looked on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Or looked on YouTube at cat videos. So uh, uh, her name is Sieg Jana Simmons, received noise abatement notice by her local district council in February this year after string of complaints from neighbors in Folkestone, uh, Kent, England. She was told that if she did not stop playing her violin and strumming her guitar, she'd be taken to court Miss Simmons ignored the noise notice, so neighbors reported her again. Noise pollution officers visited her flat and monitored the sound, finding that they could hear it from the car park more than 200 feet away, and they could hear it day and night. 
So oh, this this that sounds bad. She loves her instruments, obviously, but she's <laughs> she's. We all have our thing. Yeah. So they they went in, and the officer seized her violin, her guitar, her stereo, flat screen TV, speakers, everything. Her violin and her guitar. Two of her babies. That makes me sad. Took anything that made noise. I wonder if they took her cat. No, the what? cat was fine. How do they know she what? wasn't How strangling just, the cat? How can you just take that stuff away? Because she's making noise. <laughs> and they found out that the guitar playing wasn't any better. So we decided that that's a weird complaint. Hey, officer, she's she's making so much noise, it sounds like she's strangling her cat in there. Can so you we, go check it out? We wanted to play a game okay. to see if just the average, not that you're average, because you're well, well, well above average. Oh, Some would say royalty. Regal. Yeah. So we wanted to see if the royal could um, determine if the sound, oh, no. if, it was a, if it was a cat, a strangled cat, or a Stradivarius. So, an so we're going to play a game. Yeah. And are these you, all violins or are these a bunch of different instruments? It's all violin. So it's either a cat or a violin. It's either a cat or a violin. I played the violin once. But, and out and there, those two sound very similar. Oh, totally. And out there in listener land, you be thinking, is the, if you heard this noise all day long, would you want your neighbor's... Would you want everything removed from your neighbor's home? <laughs> Here's the first test. You will have to give us a yes or a no, or you'll have to say if that's a cat or a violin. Here we go. That's a tough one. It, it sounds like it has the tone of a cat, but really? I'm nervous because I think you guys are trying to trick me. Uh-uh. And are you going to go with cat? I'm going to say that's cat. Aha! Yeah, that was... again. I played the violin, so I know. Well, I'm have you ever kind played of a cat? With that squeaky sound. No, they're so hard. My to mom's play. allergic to cats. Um, I like to. I always tried to put mine on my shoulder, underneath my chin, <laughs> and then stretch it out, and it just didn't work. You got to get a good grip on the tail. I love. Okay, cats. neither one of you should have animals. Uh, again, no, no cats were injured in this. Uh, let's hear the next sound. Is this a is this a strangled cat or a Stradivarius? Ben. Is this supposed to be hard? That was too easy. That's a violin. Stradivarius, whatever. Ben. Uh, I feel like it's going to get harder. Is it going to get harder, Ben? Oh, it'll get harder. Okay, I'm ready. I hope it gets harder. Okay, next sound. <laughs> That's still a cat. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've never heard a violin make that sound in my life. I mean, you must be really bad. Yeah. Have you ever um, – that was a violin after Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> a little warped. Yikes. Next sound, Ben. That, That's a violin. Just so you know, the video of that has a man rubbing a cat's belly. That's a violin. Is that right, Ben? Oh, you lucked out. Okay, so you're – what are you, three to one? Okay, we'll do one more. That's definitely so, a, what. This is kind of a trick one, um, but you can you can answer. It's a violin, but it's definitely the sound that pops into my head when I see a black cat. Yeah, so this is actually the sound of a cat about to be strangled. 
Mm. <laughs> okay. It's very violent. Cats have background music to their life. Makes sense. That's very violent. Oh, why are we talking about that? This? By the way, was a cat playing that song on the violin? On the violin. Oh, you tricked me. Part of the cat wedding we covered a little bit earlier. Yeah. 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 Good times. Then do you have any more sounds? Hey, kitty. That's a violinist. <laughs> I bet you could make that sound on the violin, though. Yeah, you can. For real. Wow. Okay. You passed the test. Well, thanks. See, that's why I don't think you could say, did any of those sound like a strangled cat? That one. I lost one. Yeah, that was probably that. So that one was the tricky one. Yeah. He may have lied on that one. He's sometimes known to do that. Ben. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, Caitlin. Well done on the test. You passed. You know what? I have a game coming up for you in a couple more days, so stay tuned. I can hardly wait. We like us a good game on the Mm -hmm. show. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we want to get into violence. And what are the real impacts of your child watching violence on TV, hearing about it, uh, or actually experiencing it in their own lives? How does it impact them long term, their development? Dr. Daniel J. Flannery will be joining us, um, who's been researching the topic for many, many years. Stick with us, folks. It's time to learn. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How do you raise a child? In the world today where there's so much violence and we hear about it, we, we may even know that we are safer because the numbers say that we're less likely to be maybe harmed, um, depending on the community you live in. But we hear about terror attacks and school shootings and other violent acts nearly weekly. What's the best way to approach your children and how is this violence actually affecting them? Here to discuss this very important topic is the director of the Began Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education, Dr. Dan Flannery. Dr. Flannery, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Sounds like you've been doing some great work there at uh, Case Western Reserve University uh, on this on this subject. What? Just fill us in. It's are we are our children seeing more violence today than we did as kids? Well, I do think that um, with the advent of social media over the last five to ten years, you know, our children are being exposed to more things um, on a daily basis than we used to be. Even if it's um, sort of what they see on television, you know, for us it used to be shows like Combat and, um, you know, you had three or five channels. Right. Um, You know, now they're on their uh, phones uh, on the Internet uh, watching not only, you know, sort of regular mainstream television but cable, et cetera. So just the level of the exposure to different things, not only in their immediate environments, but, you know, certainly things that are going on around the world, uh, that exposure these days, I think, is much more immediate, much more intense, and sort of much more pervasive than what we grew up with. Oh. And again, it's uh, I've had my own kids ask questions like, so is this ever going to happen here, Dad? I mean, I, I was worried about this. I remember when Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. And my children, because we live in Salt Lake where that took place, it became such a scary thing for them. How do we do we do we protect them? I mean, or is this just a part of life? 
Well, there's a balance there, right? I mean, you want um, you want to reassure your children, especially when they're younger, um, that you're doing everything that you can, and the other adults in their lives, their teachers and police officers and others, are there to you know make things safe for them and to make sure that they're okay. But that you know bad things do sometimes happen in the world, and it's uh, it's tough when things are happening more uh, seemingly at random and sort of more. Uh, everywhere, you know, things can occur in a shopping mall or in a school or in an airport. So there is this balance between, you know, reassuring them and also saying, hey, you know, we also need to be vigilant and aware of what's going on around us. But, you know, there are simple things you can do. There's no rule that says your child needs to sit and watch the daily you know, <laughs> evening news every night. Right. And, and especially if they're uh, upset by that or disturbed by that or showing, you know, that it makes them anxious or um, is sort of depressing, you know, then, then you can monitor those things for your children and, and put some limits on those exposures. Talk to us about what, it, what violence and, and their a child's view of uh of violence, what does it do to their mental health? How does it actually impact them? Well, there's, there, we do have evidence that, you know, children that are exposed to violence over a longer period of time, you know, even, even in the past year um, as witness or as victims, you know, those kids do report uh, more significant symptoms of things like uh, anxiety and depression or high levels of anger, you know, generally around their mental health. So, we used to think that it was really only the sort of most serious incidents or the most um, significant forms of victimization that were a problem. But what we're really seeing is that when you combine sort of all of this stuff on a daily basis that they're exposed to, some kids are more vulnerable than others, and this can kind of accumulate over time. So we see really elevated levels of anger, for example, among kids that say that they're you know, being bullied regularly, or kids that say that, um, you know, in their neighborhoods and in their schools, they see a lot of uh, violence, even if they're not directly victimized themselves. So from a mental health perspective, you have to start wondering about, or at least being concerned about and being aware of the potential cumulative effects of these on, on their mental health and their behavior. And we're learning more and more about brain development, for example, and the way that these sorts of chronic exposures and victimizations can impact the sort of neurochemistry and um, functioning of the brain. So that's more of a concern for us too. As they're as they're experiencing it, you're saying their anger goes up. Um, do they tend to act out more? Do they tend to act out more violently because they've experienced violence? Well, not everybody does, but that's certainly uh, a risk factor, right, for kids that are vulnerable and have other concerns going on. So. It's not as if every child who's exposed to these things and watches a lot of violence in the media is going to go out and act on those feelings. Uh, but there is some evidence that when you combine you know, this sort of stuff with other kinds of risk factors and that anger gets thrown in there, that over time, if somebody's exposed to a lot of violence or victimized by a lot of violence, those two things do increase the risk that a young person will actually go out and and act aggressively or violently towards someone else. Hmm. It's almost like they're they're learning that violence is it's just a way of getting what you want, or it, it's just another way. Well, there, there's certainly that, and there's certainly that you know violence is just uh, aggressive and violent behavior is just sort of a part of daily normal life, and uh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it's either a, a way to cope, it's a way to get along. Everybody does it. Um, 
you know, you sort of lose that sense of empathy when someone is hurt or needs to be helped. So we see some of that evidence, the kids that grow up, particularly in violent neighborhoods, if you will, that that's just sort of normal for them. Mm. That's They're kind of desensitized to the whole thing and that violence is just a part of their daily lives. So that, you know, you become concerned over time again, that as they grow up to be young adults or, and adults in our community, do they have that sort of same feeling that's just sort of been socialized over many, many years mm-hmm. for them? I just read a study about police officers somewhere that I think it's like one in four police officers suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. And it it makes sense. They're around violence all the time. That's right. It's the same sort of thing. And when we do training with police officers, which we do around the country, we talk about their own, you know, potential for traumatic stress symptoms and the things that they're exposed to every day, just like the people – the young people and the adults that they interact with every day. So there is this sort of numbing, kind of psychic numbing that can occur. Uh, that's sort of, again, uh, this is just what happens every day, uh, along with the sort of automatic reactions to these things that, uh, you know, you can kind of get into when this is what you see every day. Yeah. So it, it, it affects not only our young people, but, yeah, as, as you say, our first, first responders. And as we say about our police officers, they're now our kind of first social responders because they're the ones who are on the front lines sort of recognizing some of these things in people. And when somebody really needs help, you know, they're often the ones who can can make that recommendation for people to get the help they need. We hear a lot lately, too, about um, suicide rates going up in teens. Is, is, you think, is there any correlation to hurting themselves, to harming themselves um, because of just more violence, more, I guess, more of a, a desensitization to violence? I'm not sure that young people are hurting themselves because they're desensitized to violence. I think there is some evidence that really young children, you know, five, six, seven, and eight, don't really have that understanding of the finality of death. And, you know, hurting themselves has a, you know, there's a finality to that. Yeah. And I think there's some evidence that very young children sort of cognitively, intellectually don't really get that. Well, among adolescents, it really is uh, a combination of sort of their mental health generally. Um, if they're experiencing a particular crisis, you know, a breakup or something, some kids report, you know, being bullied and being victimized. It's really a constellation of factors that kind of lead someone to that point um, of taking that significant act. So I, I'm not, you know, again, it's sort of you throw it in the pot mm-hmm. as one of many things that are going on, and it's it's like that little kid who's building uh, a tower of blocks with those wooden blocks. You know, some kids can build a really tall tower before it topples over. And some kids, you know, two or three blocks in that tower topples over. So some kids can handle a lot of things and are fairly resilient. And other kids, uh, it doesn't take much to sort of make them feel like they, you know, they don't have another way out. Right. And, uh, they have trouble coping with things. So, but but I guess it, I guess the the main point too is just to remember it's impacting, right? However, whether little drips that eventually cause explosions, for many of these kids, that there is a, there's a correlation to some to some mental health issues, more anxiety, maybe more depression, because of uh, either I guess in you know. Uh, living violence in their lives or just media watching of violence. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good message. Is that um, 
it matters. <laughs> you know, this right. this sort of stuff can be a factor, and it's not no big deal. Just because it's different now than it was 10 or 20 years ago, I think we can't take the attitude of, you just got to figure it out and deal with it, because that's just the world we live in these days. That's certainly a reality for us as parents and caregivers and, you know, people in the helping professions that you got to kind of figure that out. But the the challenge is there's no sort of checklist or profile or um, set of things going on that you can draw that sort of straight, solid arrow to if this is what's happening for a young mm. person, this is what the outcome's going to be. So I do think it's just important to say, hey, look, when with this sort of thing going on, whether it's the day-to-day stuff that our kids are exposed to or the things that are now seemingly going on around our country and around the world all the time, that kids are exposed to this. They need to process it. They need to understand it. They need to continue to feel safe. We need to balance that, you know, perception versus reality. As you mentioned at the beginning, we can throw out the numbers and say, you know, your risk of being a victim of violence is still pretty low historically, but that doesn't, um, afford you the escape from the notion that you, you don't feel very safe when something happens in your own community or at a school in your city or uh, to someone you know. Yeah, and you need and you need to jump on it, it seems like, to, to make sure if something has happened that you're also paying even extra attention after the fact as well. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Daniel Flannery. Daniel is the director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention, Research, and Education at uh, the Case Western University or Case Western Reserve University. We uh, will return to the conversation in just a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about the impact of media and the the exposure to media, along with just um, what else we can do as parents to make sure we are safeguarding our children, making sure that they are safe and that they have a a fair shot as they deal with what seems like a more violent world that they're uh, coming up in. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we are talking about how witnessing violence in its many forms, uh, you know, live and in person or on television, on the Internet, through social media, through news outlets, through video games, how it is impacting your children's mental health, folks. And it's it's not doing a lot of good. Joining us is Dr. Daniel Flannery. He's the director of the Bagan uh, Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Flannery. No problem. This, uh, the, the, the exposure to violence, it seems to be going up more. Again, the world we keep hearing, uh, not the world, but the, the United States is supposedly safer. Violent crimes down in a lot of places, still up, I guess, in some big cities. But we ought to be feeling a little safer. And yet our children, if they're seeing more violence through the media exposure, they must be thinking the world's falling around them. Yeah, again, you got to put this in a little bit of historical context that, you know, even 20 years ago, it was difficult for us to really hear about things going on in other parts of the 
country, let alone other parts of the world. You know, we had to wait to the right. newspaper to come out the next morning, and that's your exposure to it. You know, you could sort of limit your child's exposure to the information, um, you know, by monitoring sort of, again, they're watching the evening news, or they went to bed before the news, or they didn't read the paper. Um, so they weren't exposed to as much that was going on, and even when they were, it was rather limited. But, you know, nowadays, they're on social media nearly 24 hours a day and multiple forms of media 24 hours a day, whether they're on their phones while they're watching Netflix or they're, you know, have the TV on while they're on the internet, while they're on their phone. Yeah. You know, so these are the things that are flashing up all the time. You know, look at your own phone, you know, breaking news. It's, it seems to be relatively constant and it's there thrown in front of us over and over again. So, as adults, you know, we have some capacity to kind of filter it out. We have some capacity to kind of rationalize it or put it aside. There's certainly a natural instinct to want to know why something happened or why someone did something and some of these sort of horrible shootings. But it also used to be a little bit easier to say, hey, that's over there. <laughs> that's them. Mm -hmm. You know, That's not us. It's not going to happen to us or to people that I know. And the more that that does occur... You know, where something happens at a shopping mall or a movie theater or at the school down the street, uh, you know, the more anxious and concerned you become, both as a parent and as a young person who really doesn't have the capacity to process that information right. as well, to filter it out, to really understand the difference between fantasy and reality, you know, what they may be watching on a on a show. So for us, it was sort of Miami Vice, you know, they're... People, there were explosions all the time and gun battles, et cetera, and you never really saw the consequences of any of that. Right. Um, now you see everything. Yeah, and, and in <laughs> fact, if you really show. are looking for it, you can go see everything. Sure, on the Internet yeah. especially. So, again, there's just that difference. And, um, you know, we have a responsibility as parents to do what we can to kind of monitor what our children are doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't have a cell phone. But you certainly have the right to say, look, I, you know, this is a phone that I pay for. Yeah. <laughs> this is a computer that is in our house. You're going to be on the computer downstairs in the kitchen, you know, when I can be there and kind of looking over your shoulder if I need to. Or I'm going to take your phone whenever I feel like it and I'm going to get to see what's on there. So kids are pretty sophisticated about what they search for and trying to now delete their histories and uh, what are this, you know, Snapchats and Instagrams right. and things that go away very quickly. So, um, you know, it's more and more challenging to try to do that. But um, I think there are, we can do some of those things uh, in terms of monitoring what our kids are doing and what we allow them access to. And it's more, it seems more and more necessary. I mean, it's interesting to note that some of the the kind of the mass shootings of late, uh, you know, almost every other one is, is perpetuated by a young adult, uh, a you know, a, a twenty early twenty something year old or even younger, and and it makes you wonder if they, you know, developmentally just never kind of got through the the violence they experienced in their own life. Yeah, there's uh, again, there's so many things that go into those incidents and the motivations of those perpetrators and uh, mental health issues to begin with. Mental health issues, sort of the reaction seems to be, well, you know, if somebody goes and does that, then they must have a mental health issue. Well, that's generally true, but uh, a lot of perpetrators, when you take all of these incidents collectively over the last 10 or 20 years, very few of them had clear sort of recognizable mental illness mm. prior to instigating the act. 
So again, there's that's a a challenge where it'd be easy and and more comforting perhaps to say, well, all of these folks are mentally ill. If we just deal with the mental illness right. part of it, or the gun part of it, of it, right? Or the gun part of it. It's just not that simple, unfortunately. Yeah, we we also need to just deal with the fact that we have violence that our kids can access. Does can and I guess it depends probably on age developmentally, but. Do do children differentiate between news that they hear about in Syria that's violent versus a video game they see their brother playing? Well, that's a good question, and, and you're exactly right. It does depend a bit developmentally on their ability to sort of understand the differences. Um, again, what's what's a game and versus you know what's real, um, and kids are better at that as they get older. Uh, but those lines do get blurred. You know, if you're exposed to this over and over and over again, um, it's not as easy to differentiate the sort of cumulative effect of those things um, combined. But, you know, the good news is, even with adolescents who tend to want to spend more time with their friends and not be around their parents as much, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some evidence that says, hey, if parents just are clear with their kids, you know, about what they expect from them, those kids do better. You know, so parents who say, this is not okay, or I don't want you doing this, or yeah, we, this yeah. is the time that I want you to be at home. doesn't mean their kids are going to do that all the time, but there's evidence to suggest that, you know, in some of the longitudinal studies we've done with kids over time, that if their parents just told them what they expected of them, those kids did better. That's, and, and, and yeah, laying down the expectation, right. and then having conversations around it, um, I guess, too, and having time, like being with our kids where we can actually see them using their devices, right. catch them maybe looking at something that we can then talk about um, and, and not immediately just being punitive, but being opening up discussions. Kids, right. That's right. Being able to uh, – it's not even just about being with them necessarily. Yeah. It is about being available to them and having these discussions and – and having these conversations about, you know, with them to say, hey, what are you doing? What's what's this about? Or, you know, I have older adolescents and young adults in my home as well. And it's sort of the joke is, you know, if you want them to come to the dinner table, you got to text them. Because, <laughs> you know, they don't, right. don't want to talk on the phone. You can't call them. You know, your kids don't respond to a phone call. They respond to a text. And so there's that adjustment that we have to make as parents to say this is what this is the age that they're growing up in. And this is how they communicate but we kind of have to force the issue and say, look, we're going to sit down and eat dinner together and we're actually going to talk to each other and you're not going to be on your phone the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's hard for some kids to do right now is to put their phone down and turn it off. Uh, but that's something we can do as parents and say, look, we expect this hour or half hour or, you know, three times a week or whatever. We're actually going to talk to each other and be available to see what's going on in your day and how you're doing. Because they're also going to have to do that at work. Right. I just had this conversation with my son who's in law school and said, you know, you're really going to have to, you know, be able to converse with people when you interview <laughs> with folks and talk to them and not just respond in an email, you know, to a, a request to speak with them. So that's exactly right. They don't they don't have any idea. They kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's um, it's such a different age. I mean, again, we grew up kind of in an era when you didn't have the luxury of being entertained every second. The That's entertainment right. had to come from your head or yep. a stick you found on the ground. That's right. Hey, a stick. That's right. Um, and, and what's, go outside and play in the dirt. Yeah. I mean, and now just the apps, just the apps alone, the mere fact that Pokemon Go could take over the world as it, as it seemingly has, that's, mm-hmm. that's 
in a, in a week, in a month, really now, it's created whatever a nine billion dollar value yeah, increase. And uh, I mean, my it's fourteen year old daughter is just as content to sit for hours and watch Netflix as right. uh, you know. I have to you know sort of say to her, get up and go do something, or let's go outside and play catch or something mm-hmm. you know, to get them. Uh, whereas for us, we just did that. That's what we did. We were out until the sun went down and then came back home. Is 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 the technology itself making us more resilient to uh, to going like to, to being able to heal through the violence that we're experiencing in life, or is it making it harder for us? Because people well, could experience violence back in the day. Does technology? Because nowadays it seems like there's all, there's other information. There's better ways to research and know stuff. There's stuff online to get help. Right. Right. You know, more information isn't always better. Better, right. And, and it's not always accurate and the right information. Yeah. You know, so that's the that's the trick. Yeah, there's more out there. There's more available. You can sort of self-diagnose your ailments better, you know, by Googling things and symptoms on the Internet. But it doesn't mean that the, that you're in the best position to then go treat yourself, too. You know, sometimes you got to go see the doctor <laughs> yeah. and, and get the real information and, and the real diagnosis and the best treatment course. So, you know, certainly it's it's helpful in some ways. You know, you need to fix a plumbing problem. You can go on YouTube and watch a film and kind of do it yourself. But, um, you know, there's also information overload and uh, having to sift through what's really kind of real um, and accurate versus what's out there um, as misinformation. Mm-hmm. So I think we just need to be, again, we need to be mindful of that. We need to be careful about it and not just assume yeah. that it's all good. Yeah, they'll be fine. Kids will be kids. They're they're resilient, and they are. But one thing I also just I picked up from your article um, is the simple idea that if they've experienced being bullied, if they've experienced something traumatic, and and if you're talking to them enough, you might be able to sense that. Don't don't minimize its long term impact on them. Instead, get them help. Get them to somebody that can help them understand and process. That's right. And and the thing about all of that is that it's everybody responds a bit differently. And just because they don't act out right away when something happens doesn't necessarily mean that six months down the road or even a year down the road, something else might happen to trigger, you know, some sort of anger or anxiety mm-hmm. or what have you. So, you know, kids could bottle things up for a while as a way to cope. And then something happens uh, down the road and, and it all kind of comes flooding back. So you just sort of have to be vigilant yourself as their parent and caregiver and that's part of that being uh, sort of available and aware and not just blowing it off yourself as being no big deal they seem to be okay um and and ask them mm-hmm. I've, I've asked my kids directly what's going on you know how are you doing it's, it seems different now you're sleeping more or your grades are falling off or you know what's going on with this at school? I heard about this thing, and let them. You know they can tell you nothing. Yeah. Their first response probably is going to be nothing. Nothing. It's no big deal. Right. But uh, you've at least opened the door. That's right. And and the history of it will will eventually hopefully pay off, one way or another. Doctor Daniel Flannery, thank you so much for your great work. No problem. And thanks thank for you. being with us, director of the Bagan Center for Violence Prevention Research and Education. You can go look up uh, bagan.case.edu to get more information about the work. They are doing their um, on violence and children's mental health. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. And when we come back, we'll be talking about getting college ready. Is college uh, taking a big bite out of your children? Is it shortening their lifespan? 
interesting news. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we are really fortunate to be able to have the opportunity for higher education and go to college, aren't we? But college life can be stressful and taxing. We actually have a lot of university students that work for us here at BYU Broadcasting. And while they're attending school, sometimes they are stressed out of their heads. One of those stress cases is our very own producer, Leanna Tan. And she has recently become convinced that college life is killing her. She's going to tell us some ways college could be expanding your mind while shortening your life. The other day, I opened my refrigerator only to find it was practically empty. So the next thing I knew, I was boiling a partially open box of lasagna I had gotten from an old roommate and tearing it with my hands to make spaghetti. To make it less of a sad meal, I cracked open a can of corn as a side dish. Everything was fine and dandy, and suddenly I sensed something wasn't quite right. And I was looking at the can, and sure enough, I was eating corn that expired over a year ago. Let that be an object lesson in the dangers of tampering with the laws of Mother Nature. What did I do? Well, of course I proceeded to eat it. Why? Because I'm a college student. Yes, slaving away for that bachelor's degree has made me resort to expired corn and hand-torn lasagna. I could feel my life getting shorter by the mouthful. Finally put down the fork and realized, college is killing me. Literally. It's the beginning of August and the new school semester is starting. I began thinking of all those innocent freshmen that have no idea what they're getting themselves into and decided that it's my civic duty to put out a warning to anyone entering this infernal pit called higher education. As a heads up of what you're getting yourself into, here are five diseases that you're bound to contract from college life. Botulism. Healthwithfood.org says botulism is a rare but serious illness that can cause paralysis and even lead to death. May you just drop dead! It's caused by bacteria which may live in improperly canned or preserved food. Their spores produce toxins which, when eaten, can lead to severe poisoning even when consumed in tiny amounts. And let's be honest, we all know the average college student's diet consists of about 95% canned tuna. Bring on those toxic spores. Hypothermia. According to the WebMD, hypothermia is a potentially dangerous drop in body temperature, usually caused by prolonged exposure to cold temperatures, or by the extreme difficulty finding housing in that awkward week between when your housing contract ends from one semester and begins in the next semester, and you end up in that cold, hard street corner. You're as cold as ice Postural kyphosis. Also known as hunchback. You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. With the weight of all our textbooks these days, we'll all be walking at 90 degree angles. Fixhunchback.com says if a backpack is not fitted properly, all the weight falls on the person's neck and shoulders. 
Usually, in order to compensate, the person starts bending forward at the hips or tries arching the back in order to maintain the balance. However, this may cause the spine to unnaturally compress the discs. Moreover, an overstuffed backpack also leads to back and neck pain, fatigue, headaches, osteoarthritis, and even slitted discs. Needless to say, that in the long term, it may also result in a hunchback. Separation anxiety disorder. Wikipedia describes this as a psychological condition in which an individual experiences excessive anxiety regarding separation from home or from people to whom the individual has strong emotional attachment. AKA, every semester after you spend four months every day building undying bonds with your roommates and classmates, and then suddenly they're torn from you. to the opposite side of campus or switch their major. Will you me? All you have left of them is the faint glow of their Instagram posts. Fetal growth retardation. Among all the late night cramming for exams, roommate heart-to-hearts, and midnight nightmares about not graduating, college causes a lot of sleep deprivation. And VeryWell.com says that sleep deprivation in pregnant women can compromise the blood flow to the placenta, which may reduce the amount of growth hormone released, which may then lead to developmental or growth problems in our unborn children. <sighs> Seems like a long road to a slow and painful death. I guess this means we'll all be anxious, hunchback, hypothermic, paralyzed people with tiny babies. But at least we'll have a piece of paper with the university president's signature on it, right? (laughs) So, for all of you incoming freshmen ready to take on college, my biggest piece of advice for you is don't forget to kiss your mother goodbye. And if you're feeling sick at all, don't Google your health concerns. Well, I'm Leanna Tan. And that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Your life coach here, Dr. Matt your guide through life. We try to touch them all. Physical, social, emotional, spiritual, financial. Today we're going to be giving you some habits to create change in your life. Ten habits uh, to create change. We'll be getting to that in a few moments. We're, we're all trumped out. That was hour number one. If you want to hear our analysis on hour number one, well, on Trump, you got to go look up our show a few hours ago. You can go to iTunes, tune in, byuradio.org. When we get it posted. We'll you get it always posted. say that as if they could go yeah. right now. You can the go, show's not done yet. They can go right now and get yesterday's analysis of Trump. Which is kind of the same. But today was magical because he's he's going kamikaze now. I came in like a rainbow. It used to just be his hair that people would laugh about, but now it's almost everything that comes out of his mouth. So we're probably not going to go 
too much deeper into Donald. We'll, we'll touch it a little bit, get on it a little bit. But we've got to talk about the ugliest dog contest. Mm. We'll get to that. There was like festering wounds, uh-huh. open sores. This was an <laughs> epic dog contest. But we also, we, we, again, bring you more of the story than you get in most news stories. And we, we bring you a different angle. We will be, we'll let you listen to the song that they sang as he, as this dog won. They have a special song they sing to the winning dog. Oh, nice. It's beautiful. Like when we were watching it and listening uh, to the video of it, Ben actually teared up. Mm. It's that moving. Well, he's a crier. It was pretty emotional. You would probably tear up too. Nope. It's not a Kleenex commercial. Only Kleenex commercials. There, there's two animal pageants that have gone down. Um, the crowned uh, – Lithuania crowned the prettiest goat. Mm. We have that as well as the acceptance uh, – not the speech because it's a goat. Right. But we also – the music they played there was incredible by Katy Perry. You won't believe it. Katy Perry showed up. Wonderful. To do a duet. She's been doing a lot of conventions yeah. and these types of things lately. So yeah. It's almost it's, it's what the C stars do, but she's an A star, but she loves goats. She works hard and yeah. goats. I believe there's a farm in her background. So <laughs> Yeah. We'll get to all of that. Plus BYU Sports Nation will be with us and our hero of the day. It's all this hour. But first let's get to the headlines around the country. Who better to bring that to us? Honestly. Who could do it better? Then our very own Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin? Thanks, Matt. I know we said we're all trumped out, but we're not quite done yet. Yesterday, Donald Trump said at a Virginia rally that at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, looked like a war zone when you once had these massive factories. Trump noted that he noticed the alleged similarities when he had recently flown over the city in his private plane. The city of Harrisburg begs to differ. Quote, Mr. Trump has made an unfortunate mistake in disparaging Pennsylvania's capital city. After a mere glance from the window of his airplane, Joyce Davis, director of communications of the city of Harrisburg, said, Mr. Trump should know that Harrisburg and its residents are an integral part of the United States, which he is vying to lead. Speaking from the White House on Tuesday, President Obama said that Donald Trump is, quote, unfit to serve as president, perhaps Obama's strongest language yet denouncing the Republican nominee since the election season began. Speaking from the White House on Tuesday, President Obama said that Donald Trump is unfit to serve as a president, and if he keeps on proving it, he's woefully unprepared to do his job. French President Francis Holland said U.S. presidential nominee Donald Trump makes people want to throw up and that he's concerned by how much the candidate could shift world world politics because, quote, an American election is a world election. In a meeting with the presidential press on Tuesday, Holland said he believed a Trump victory could affect France's presidential election next spring. He says if the Americans choose Trump, that will have consequences. Florida health officials say there are now 15 people in the Miami area with Zika virus that they contracted locally. The mosquito-borne virus causes microcephaly and other birth defects, and pregnant women are being told to stay away from a one-square-mile area north of downtown Miami where active transmission of the virus is ongoing. Experts expect to see more cases emerge in the coming days. So that's scary. Look out for that. And finally, Matt, here's your last story for today. Yes. Your last headline, and this is one that you're going to want to laugh at, but it's also awful, so I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. I'll try not to. An Australian cyclist, Gareth Clear, was riding his bike with his iPhone 6 in his back pocket over the weekend when his foot slipped off the pedal, and he lost his balance Uh. and fell. You know. Yeah. It happens. It happens. But he was not expecting his phone to explode upon impact, thereby sending him to the hospital with third-degree burns and the need for a skin graft. No, that's not He says, I just saw smoke. He says he saw smoke coming out of his back pocket, and then all of a sudden he felt surging pain and searing heat. He'll be housebound all week, but he is expected to make a full recovery. But apparently the lithium batteries in the iPhone on impact can be 
a bomb. A bomb. A mini bomb. In your, so they're mm. telling athletes and, and professional cyclists or even anyone riding around town not to ride with your phone in your back pocket. That's great So advice. I'm giving you a warning. There's your advice for this Wednesday. I always have Ben carry my phone anywhere I go. Oh, is he your pack mule behind you? He's more, yeah. That's, I don't like that's to call him that. That's kind of a derogatory that. form of what he is, but basically, yeah. Oh. He's so offended when <laughs> Sorry, I say Sorry, Ben. That. Pack mule. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a sad but a great warning for everybody. Keep your – careful where you put your, your telephone. Yeah. Because if you fall, it could explode. <laughs> they got to fix that battery problem. It's, it's not good. Um, crazy story we were telling you about earlier. It, apparently, it's not enough to have a beauty contest anymore. You, you now need contests for your animals. So whether it's a dog or a goat – they have contests. All you got to do is, is pick your pick your prize, pick your animal. Let's first go to the um, blind dog. A blind dog with oozing sores wins the world's ugliest dog contest. We will post the picture. 17-year-old Chinese crested chihuahua with legs bowed out uh, like, a, like a frog and oozing sores on its body just won the contest. Sweepy Rambo took home the title at the annual Petaluma World's Ugliest Dog Contest Friday night in uh, Sonoma Marin uh, Fairgrounds after beating 15 other malformed pooches. Like, that's sad. Here's the, the singer that sang the song once he won. The owners were crying through this song. With a skin you don't have fleas because you have no fur. Yeah. You've won the contest. Yes, you're UGL and Y. No, it's, it's no There She Is Miss America song, but... It's, it's reinforcing. Yeah, it works. Spooky pooch. Hmm. You sneak up on the dish uh, to get a drink of water. Just keeps going. This is a bit close. When you can afford a pooch to pay, and maybe an eye patch. Hmm. Wow. Riveting, riveting. Yeah. You know. They really get some talent out of the ugly dog contest. But they're reinforcing their brand, mm. right? So you don't want to say, here she comes, Miss Ugly Pooch. Right. So instead it's, it works. it's hey all, there, Ugly Pooch. It's about it's, branding. You're it's right. It's a great song. Right. It's great. I mean. Inspiring even. But it's not the only song. Mm. There's another one that uh, in the Lithuanian village where they crown the prettiest goat. I mean, what song do you sing to a goat? Singing with a goat. There you go. Mm. He, he gets a solo. Yeah. Wow. And Whoa. the people were going crazy during this song. There you go. You can see the video. They're standing up. They're cheering. Uh, the goats are clapping their hoofs. Oh. 
the spirit of it all. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So if you had to pick a song yeah. to be your favorite song I, uh, for a pageant. I don't know. It's a hard choice. Yeah. They're they're both really off putting, but What do you mean? Mm. Off putting. It's not something I'd ever want to hear again. Really? Yeah. Yes. You didn't like those songs. I I wouldn't say I didn't like them, it's just, you know not really something I want to revisit. Wow. Celebration of American culture. Really, one's in Lithuania. Oh. So there's that. <laughs> well, it's a celebration of Lithuanian culture. <laughs> Just, you know, facts. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so if you've got nothing else to do, you can go celebrate the pooch or the goat. And by the way, the goat, the winning goat for the most beautiful goat, gorgeous. Gorgeous goat. Yeah. Um, the, by the way, both pictures uh, will will be on our our site because we want you to enjoy those did you see the picture of um they have a new lucille ball statue no are you just try not to i'm not really up on my current lucille ball news so please oh really share yeah well ben's on their feed so ben gave it to me um <laughs> apparently lucille ball just a great actress comedic nobody could make the chocolate factory line Right. More exciting than Lucy. Or Ball. the winery and they're right. stepping on the graves. Stepping on the graves. Yeah. Making the, the graves. Classic scenes, yes. So they, they somebody commissioned sculptor uh, Carolyn Palmer to build a life-size statue for her. Mm. And it was going to go in her town, her hometown in New York. Um, the problem is when the statue was done, it it was a little scary. She didn't look like the Lucille we all had known. Okay. And so it was – she was kind of scary, Lucy. Wow. And the town, they were a little freaked out by the whole thing. Hmm. So they decided to make a replacement sculpture. Okay. And that's – the replacement was revealed to take place of the scary one. Boy. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's hard. They, they, haven't, they haven't yet shown what the – the, the new, new one? one's going to look like, but it, whatever it is, it'll be better than the old one. That wasn't even close. That's what I worry about. Like if you were ever, you know, important enough to have somebody bronze you. Right. Well, now they have 3D printing, so maybe they can make it closer. Yeah, but what maybe if you don't even like could... how you look presently? I don't know. Don't make a statue. I'd be like, can you make my shoulders bigger? Yeah. <laughs> my forearms don't look that small and puny. Like which which area would you like to improve today? <laughs> anyway, it's hard to be it's hard to be famous. Apparently, you would only know. No, I, actually, that's what I'm saying. Apparently, you do have a .dot com associated with your name. I do. I do not have a .dot com. They're so. very easy to get. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Except now, you'll probably have to get a .dot net. Yeah, it's all right. .dot biz. Mm-hmm. Not to be rude. Or pick some country. .dot ca. That's Canada. You Ben just. Got Raven Ice Cream. Dot IE. Yeah, you can do that. I don't know what IE is for. I think it's the. I think it's it's something Amer- um, Emirates. Yeah, countries that, will sell those. Yeah, yeah, he'll sell a lot of ice cream over there. We're gonna take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with Marcel Schwantes, I believe is how we say his name, and he is um, the author of an article that's in Ink Magazine. 
about uh, the 10 timeless habits that will change your life right now. I'm going to suggest as we go through this, you think of one that you can get started on today. Stick with us. Interesting stuff. Learning to uh, hopefully get our lives back. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we live in a constantly changing world. The only constant we do have, though, is that we can always expect trials and hardships to come. We also always will have a choice for how we handle those. But it all doesn't have to end with the difficulties of life. Even when you've hit a low point, you know, that might include a divorce, unemployment, loss of a loved one, or sickness, whatever it may be, our next guest, Marcel Schwantes, founder of Leadership from the Core, is here with us this morning to teach us how we can take these hard parts of life and use them to reinvent ourselves for the better. Marcel Schwantes, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here. Thank you, Matt. This is, I think, a cool subject. We need, we talk about life is hard, we hear it in the news. We watch the political process that just seems like a, I don't know, a bad nightmare sometimes. And all of a sudden, life gets heavy. But you've put together uh, for Inc. Magazine 10 timeless habits that will change our lives right now. Did you learn these just consulting with people from your leadership program? I learned these, Matt, as a result of having made so many mistakes. In fact, I referenced that in, uh, in the first paragraph, I believe where the, the most horrendous uh, uh, um, uh, thing that happened in my life was a divorce. Yeah. Right? I think you mentioned it. And out of that uh, situation, I had to reinvent myself. Well, what does that mean? I mean, I wanted to be a better person because all of the decisions leading up to that point uh, were about um, self-gratification. It was all about me, not, not being a person of service, or thinking about the you know, uh, other people. So... I was uh, probably the most arrogant person I knew at that time. So I knew that I had to, I had to figure out a way to um, get out of this mindset that was all about serving me and serving my needs. And so as I read and, um, and, and studied and obviously picked up a few degrees along the way and some certifications, I realized, hey, I'm missing the mark here. I need to, I need to, I need to get with the program. And so I began to... Um, to put together just kind of a, uh, a template for living the life that I wanted. And some of it came out in that ink article. That's great. I mean, and if, if they just could take one idea, it's, it's a great, I think, you know, breakthrough for any of us. And in fact, I challenge all of us that, as we're listening, which one of these could stand out that we could do immediately, start this second today to start doing. Marcel, walk us through some of your points um, sure. and, and why they matter so much. I guess the first one is we need – Especially, I love the idea when you're down and you just are cornered and you can't, you feel stuck. Uh, number one, choose to live in peace. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, well, peace is, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, Matt. And so I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a, a startup mode for my business. And so in getting a launch going and chasing after investors um, you know, you tend to want to compare yourself with other entrepreneurs that are further down, further down the path. And, and so in, to live in peace for me as a business owner, uh, first and foremost, 
is not to compare myself, okay, with uh, with you know what's what's what what are the other Joneses doing, right? Yeah. Um, and so living in peace is just focusing on myself and my own path because that's what's going to and, and believing in myself that the path that I'm headed down is and, and where I am today is, is exactly where I should be. Um, because once you start to compare yourself and you start to doubt your own ability, you start to doubt. Uh, uh, where you should be in life, and, and then that just kind of derails you from the path of peace. Right, so yeah. That's number one. Well, I mean, it seems like you start, it's so easy to have that comparative mentality where you're looking at the other people your age or in your industry and you're thinking, oh, man, why are they getting that break? I've been fighting for that break forever. It, it, and you become so comparative that you can't sit in the space you've been given, the space you are. Right, right, and so in 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 living in peace, it, it kind of it helps you to stick to the plan and and keep moving forward towards you know towards attaining your vision. Yeah, another idea then I guess is trusting the process. Uh, is that yeah. the process of life? You know, it's funny is that when when you live in peace, obviously uh, the peace allows you to trust in the process, not only of life but whatever your current situation is. I talk about surrender as a, a word that uh, a lot of Taipei's don't like because it comes across as weak. Like, surrender to what? I mean, come on, do, am I giving up all of a sudden? No, the surrender that I'm talking about is just kind of, uh, just surrender yourself to the moment, to the outcome, and just believe in the process. What, for, so for me, is believe in the process that I'm exactly where I should be and that, um, you know, the business is going to take off and that uh, I'm going to uh, find you know, venture capitalist um, money eventually down the line. If it, you know, if that if that's what the, where the process takes me, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is just to surrender to the outcome, because believe me, the opposite of that is uh, is <laughs> is a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress that you don't want to take on. Mm. Oh. Especially, I look in your industry. I mean, everybody's fighting. They're fighting for the next buck. They're fighting for the mm-hmm. next advantage. So. Great advice, I guess, in a business world. But really, I can even see in in my own personal life with my own family, you know, trusting the process of where I am and what I'm going through. Live happy is another idea you give us. Um, again, how do we how do we get happy, Marcel, when life's not handing us happiness? It's always a choice, Matt. It's always a choice. But um, I I talk about the, the the studies that have been coming out that you you choose your path. Whether you uh, even when things are down and you're going kind of a you know the chips are down, you're going against the grain. Uh, if you choose to get up in the morning today and you tell yourself today I choose to live happy, and then you create um, you create your day around. Uh, things, activities, um, conversations, um, whatever it is that are going to cause you to feel good about yourself. Um, so I mentioned the things in, in, in Living Happy. Use the tools of meditation, prayer, journaling, right? And, of course, the, the mindfulness movement is so popular right now right. because it, it helps you to kind of stay in the moment and not worry about tomorrow, next week, a year from now, and just to kind of stay present to what your current situation is, because sometimes uh, we tend to blow things out of proportion when it's not that bad. When you compare yourself to, uh, you know, to uh, um, the worst-case scenario and, and what, uh, the things that are happening around the world, and when you focus just on, okay, where I am right now, you know, it's, it, could be a, it could be a lot worse. So that comes by choice. 
is to choose to be happy and then, and then create. And, and so what happens is when you choose to be happy, good things start to come come back your way. Mm. So there's a uh, there's a, a return on your choice to live happy. Yeah, and, and it seems like once once you've kind of reached that level personally, you want to now take it to your relationships. And you mentioned the need to to move to have great relationships as well. Well, that uh, you know the. the the studies coming up, uh, I, I reference um, the Harvard study of adult development where they followed for 75 years, they followed um, about 724 men in the 1930s throughout the course of their lives, career, marriage, divorce, parenthood, etc. And the response from the one of the original directors of the study, who is, by the way, is in the 70s now himself, and he says that the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. And, and when you studied about the benefits of great relationships, and I'm not talking about quantity, by the way. I'm talking about the quality of your relationships, right? It's been proven that people actually live longer, live happier. Um, those that are, are nearing the age of 50 right now, if you are surrounded by a great community of friends and family that you're well-connected and you're, you, know, you, you have a, a strong social um, network, by the time you hit 80, you're going to be um, you're going to be experiencing better health than those people that kind of are isolated or feel lonely at the age of 50. Hmm. So, absolutely has tremendous benefits. So, start forming those relationships now if you're in your 40s and 50s, uh, because you're going to live a long life. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's it's true. Your gut kind of tells you. That the people matter, but who would have known that it would have such an impact on us? Again, we're speaking with Marcel Schwantes, who wrote an article for um, Inc.com. If you uh, just look up Marcel Schwantes and Inc.com, you'll get right to the article. We're going to take a break, come back, and continue this discussion um, and let you learn more about uh, uh, Mark's work also from Leadership from the Core and uh, some of his servant leadership program and development. We'll take a break. We'll be right back helping you live a healthier life, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show, and today we're talking with Marcel Schwantes, who wrote an article, 10 Timeless Habits That Will Change Your Life Right Now. He wrote it for Inc.com. You can check it out on Inc.com, and uh, it's really, a lot of it just comes from his own personal experiences, but also his work at Leadership from the Core. Uh, Marcel, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for being with us. Good to be here. Thank you. One of the things you mentioned in your article um, is at some point you got to give back and, and choosing to give is something that it's one of those timeless habits that we could do right now. And it would immediately inject, you know, some, I guess, joy, happiness back in our lives. Yeah. And uh, we have to, first we have to get out of the, um, sort of the, 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 the stigma of giving is that it, it's attached to money and that, well, I don't have any money. How can I give? Well, right. we, we can give, so much uh, outside of uh, you know of, of money. For example, is there a person that you can mentor that you can give your time to, and perhaps to teach somebody something new, a skill, 
Um, uh, but is there a, a cause that you can support? You can that you can give of your time, say, to volunteer at a shelter, for example, to support a cause. Um, and, and basically, it's giving is to have a pay it forward mentality, right? That's yeah. a mindset. That's a mindset that we choose to to do to get up in the morning and say, "I'm going to be a giver today." In fact, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I get to go to a lot of networking events, and uh, there's something. Uh, unusual about most networking events, if you've been to, you know, like a chamber of commerce, for example, people show up with their business cards, and it's more of a, what, what uh, Adam Grant in his book, Give and Take, calls the, uh, uh, the matchers, right? You show up with your business card, you, you hand your business card, and you get one back. It's, it's kind of a matching thing, right? Scratch your back, I'll scratch yours. You're expecting something in return. Well, in giving, there's another, um, another uh, form of giving and this is really profound. A guy by the name of Adam Rifkin is an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur out in the Silicon Valley, and he started something called the Five Minute Favor. Hmm. And the Five Minute Favor also is also um, uh, documented in uh, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. By the way, if you want to pick up a copy, but um, Five Minute Favor is basically showing up to a networking event and giving something without any expectation of return coming back at you. And so it can be, say, a, a five-minute favor where you uh, connect somebody um, to somebody, you make an introduction, um, or you write a quick review of someone's book, um, you know, or just, uh, you know, or even uh, critique somebody's resume. So it's, it's, it's giving a selfless act, basically. And these five-minute favors are popping up now, um, and all over the country, and what's happening is people are coming, and 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 it's it's becoming so popular. Be- and what they're finding is that those people that give, um, even without expecting anything in return, the return is going to be even higher in the long term. So they're going to experience even more success by giving without expecting anything mm. back. Yeah, and it almost seems like this gets to your deeper core, the the deeper person that you are. You're deeper than your business that you're selling to you know at these at these events. Instead, let me just connect with you one on one, person to person. Yeah, that's correct, and you know it helps to foster sort of that servant leadership mentality yeah. that um, that we're we're hopefully going to be touching on in a, in a few minutes here. In fact, but, um, talk yeah, to, get to that because that's part of what I see as as I look at some of your final um, uh, points. Um, ch- mm-hmm. Choose compassion and kindness. Choose to have faith. Choose the good fight. Mm-hmm. Make decisions full of integrity. These are these are kind of virtues, right? These are I guess they're not always seen as business principles per se, but these are things that you're saying will immediately drive you to some state of happiness. It's uh, that's true in a state of happiness, whether in your personal life or uh, in your business life. Right, they work you know, there too. Right. And, and so the, these, as, you, as, you, as we round out here, the last five, um, they're really tenants of a servant leader, somebody that puts the needs of others first. Obviously, if you're going to exercise compassion and kindness, it's not about you, right? Right. Um, and uh, in fact, I, I want to reference something that uh, I saw recently. Um, you know, Sean Acker is the best-selling author, and he's that uh, scientist that sat down with Oprah and basically told her um, the... Uh, five steps to, to, to kind of train your brain to become more positive. And he told Oprah that one of the things that people do 
that, according to his research, obviously this is you know there's empirical evidence here to suggest that you you can become happier by doing this every day. And he says, express compassion and kindness. Basically, all it takes is for two minutes a day, you write a text or write an email uh, praising or thanking someone you know. And that's it. And you do it you know, hmm. for a different person each day. And what Sean Acker is saying, and, you know, and he, he says this in his wildly popular TED Talk, by the way, you can look it up. He says that people who do this become known as positive leaders with strong social connect- connections. And it's, it's the, the greatest predictor of long-term happiness. Wow. It comes from extending that kindness, kindness and that compassion. And, hey, you can start today by doing it two minutes a day. <laughs> so, Isn't that easy? It's, I, guess, I guess that's what I love about this um, because it's the simplest solution, and, and it works, and it's almost intuitive. You can think by just writing that letter or you know, by just serving that person for a few minutes – it's it's going to make them it's going to deepen a connection, but it will also simultaneously make your life better, more fulfilling. Yes, richer. Transfer that to the workplace. You're in the management role. Um, it works even wonders because this is how you value your employees, and in return, they're going to give you their best effort. They're going to show up with their best work. Talk about your one of the points is make decisions in full integrity. One of the things we see going on in the political race of presidency, a lot of people not trusting the two the two leaders. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about integrity and trust, and 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 what does that do to you personally? Like, why is why is this a motivator that will immediately change me? Yeah, you know, it's uh, the the old saying is the, the integrity is uh, is doing the right thing even when nobody's looking, right? So right. it gives you. It's basically acting, acting in integrity uh, is acting according to your values. And, and so honesty is obviously a big one for me, honesty, authenticity, being able to show up with your, with your feelings, right? If you, if, you, um, if, if you don't agree with something, you need to express that disagreement in a respectful way. But what integrity does is that it allows you to live in, you're, you have a clear conscience by, by walking in integrity, you're walking the talk, right? Mm-hmm. People, don't, people don't question your motives. Um, they know that you don't, uh, uh, you're not out to manipulate or, or take advantage, right? And so that's what a person of integrity does. And this is especially applicable in, in a leadership role. You, you can't be a leader without integrity because leadership is all about character and influence. Yeah. So those, those things are all wrapped up in integrity. And it, it sells the message, right? And, and it makes it easier. If you have that integrity, people trust what you're saying more, I guess, instantly than if they have to kind of work through all of the other stuff they know about you. That's usually the case, Matt, is the, the, the people that respond to the best leaders are the ones that they can trust. And yeah. integrity goes hand in hand with that. That's powerful. Um, talk a little bit more about the steward leadership and 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 the concept of that. I, I we talk about that a lot in my church. About uh, you know the, we have a stewardship of the land of our family, and it's kind of it's a it's it's a different approach to leading. It's not so domineering, right? Well, servant leadership. Um, you know, it's it's, it's certainly not a. A new concept. It's not a, a new. It, there's no, right. um, you know, not a big business lingo. It's, it goes back for centuries. I mean, if you you, you want to reference 
servant leadership. You can go back to the, the world's major relig- religions talk about servant leadership. You know, as far back as, you know, in, in Christian terms, uh, Christ uh, washing the feet of, of his disciples mm. was an ex- example of servant leadership. But how does that translate to the modern culture uh, in, in the modern workplace? Well, let me flash forward to 1970, a guy by the name of Robert Greenleaf um, studied what was happening in the workplace uh, in his, at that time, he was, he was an executor for AT&T, and over the course of about 30 to 40 years, he came up with all of the behaviors that um, the best leaders had, and then wrote a book about an essay, actually, and, uh, and described that all of these, all of these things that, the, that employees are responding to, um, the, the leader that was a good coach and a good mentor, uh, the leader that respected you and, and encouraged you. Those were, and back, you know, this is back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, translated to people that were actually serving, and in serving, they, they served and they led. So there's that paradox. Yeah. Right? But they were, they served first, and then that pointed them to great leadership, and the people responded. And so he started, you know, he wrote a book, and now, uh, when you, I mean, when you think about leadership as a whole, Matt, um, I don't even, I, I don't even use servant leadership as a as a term because it kind of, um, it's still counterintuitive, and uh-huh. you know, people question uh, the servant part, right? Yeah. That, that it's it's too weak and it's you know it's doormat material, etc. So, but what's happening is that when you look at the tenets of servant leadership that Greenleaf researched and talked about. That's just making the case for awesome leadership today, right? right, right. So a servant, a servant leader is a great listener. Well, the best and most powerful leaders um, that get people to trust them, they are excellent leaders, right? Um, the, the, the servant leader that uh, shares, shares his or her power, you'll find that now in the best cultures where employees are engaged because they have a voice and they can ex- express their voice without, without the fear of being reprimanded, right, to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to provide input and ideas. This is what a great leader does, does today. He invites in those different perspectives from, a, from, from diverse ideas from different people, personalities, gender, whatever, right, age, et cetera. I mean, we're, right now millennials are now the, 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 the biggest segment of, of our, our population is composed of, of millennials. So we have to adapt a little bit to, to the millennial mindset as well and invite them into the conversation and give them a seat at the table, right, um, and then groom them to become future leaders as well. So that's what – those are all things that – that um, I would make a case to say that, that the, the best of leaders do today, and Greenleaf was talking about it 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Isn't that, again, it's, it's so principle-based that, that uh, it's, I guess it will always kind of stand the test of time. Um, talk about, as we wrap this up, I always like to ask the one thing. So if, mm. if we've talked about 10 different points plus many more and – if there's one thing that we could just do today, every one of us, simple, basic, what would you say is the one thing that would make the biggest change in your life right now? Uh, for me, I think that it, this speaks to my personal um, vision, my personal goals in life, and but, but that is to give. Um, I, you know, the giving part. Uh, yeah. The whole purpose uh, for me to establish a business 
is to create enough wealth to give back, to pay it forward. And, and, and our, my wife and I have this personal mission where um, we want to fight the, and, and help to end the sex trafficking problems that we see across the country. And I'm in, I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we have, a here, we have a problem with that here in our own backyard. And so obviously we want to support the causes that, that fight uh, uh, sex trafficking and human trafficking. And mm. so that's, that, that is a whole purpose for creating wealth through our different businesses and ventures is to be able to give back towards that cause. That's beautiful. And I, I love the cause as well. So uh, we'll have to get you back on, Marcel. We'll keep watching your latest uh, writings as well. And I guess is the best place for them to get a hold of you at leadershipfromthecore.com? That's it, leadershipfromthecore.com. Or you can find me on Inc., like you mentioned. That's it. Marcel Schwantes, thank you so much for your great work. Keep it up. My pleasure. Thank you. Again, go check him out on Inc.com as well or LeadershipFromTheCore.com. There's power, folks, and little steps, simple things, and they seem sometimes just like too easy. But why aren't we doing them if they're so easy? Well, I tried it. It didn't work. I tried giving, and it just didn't work. Come on. Then give more. Eh. We'll take a break, folks. Come back to a little Coach's Corner. Got, we've also got to get to our hero of the day. A lot going on. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little coach's corner for you. Uh, you, you sitting there, you listening in your car, wherever you are. What, what's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, oh, just chasing you. If I just, I just got to do this one thing. Once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I. Uh, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You, you can't fix certain things. The heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's It's a big deal, folks. And all of us are battling life. It's... You know, I don't ever want you to get depressed because of we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know, if you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know, lose weight and start. You don't need to buy a scale. You don't need to do all that. Just whatever's on your list. I really need to call my kids, but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad. All right. So why do you keep being prompted to call your kids? I'm a big believer that uh, the answers are already in you. I don't – when I work and coach somebody, I don't need to 
to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows, but your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you, you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I, I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know. I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego, and our ego's like, you got to beat everybody. You got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. Ugh. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure If you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? basic. So be careful. As we, as we go through life, it's, it's every one of us. We're chasing, we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about. And we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time, we finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. Ugh, we've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? To become the change, a little bit of the change. Anyway, that's how I think you make yourself a hero. And uh, as we end the show, we always like to talk about heroes. Uh, these are a lot of times, you know, people that step in and change a situation. I'm asking you to step in and change your long-term life, right? Our hero of the day, though, is Vietnam vet Michael Barbita. He is a man that stepped in and was shot in a robbery. Listen to this. A, vet, a Vietnam veteran is hailed as a hero after helping a guard who police say was shot by two men who robbed an armored truck in Windsor, California on July 12th. Both suspects have since been arrested. Michael Barbita, a Vietnam vet, 
his war experience served him well as he was calm, collected, and he knew exactly what to do. He rushed to the side of the Loomis armored truck guard who had been shot several times. Barbita was about 30 feet away from where the armed robbery happened in front of a Chase Bank in a busy shopping complex. The suspects pulled up quickly, shot the guard twice before robbing the truck. The robbers then sped off in the car. Barbita got paper towels from a Verizon store next to the bank and rushed to the wounded guard. He was able to stop the bleeding until police and paramedics arrived. The two suspects, by the way, were captured later, and uh, Barbita is now being held as a hero for saving the guard who was shot in the robbery and being there. How intense of a situation to run into. A lot of us would never run into the situation. In fact, a lot of us tend to run away from them, don't we? So that's what being a hero is about. Vietnam vet, Michael Barbita, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And again, we challenge all of us, every one of us, not just you, but me as well. We all need to step up and play the game, the role we're supposed to play in this world. And uh, do it the best we can. And tomorrow we start it again and try it again. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools, more information to help you see the good in the world and become the good in the world. Until then, make it a great one. Take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.